It's great to see you, Rachel, Georgia, especially lovely to see you today. I hope you're doing well. I'm glad that we're able to pray for the wider family as well, but just so lovely to see you here and um, see all that God's been working on and doing in your family lives as well. Um, Let's pray together, and then I'm going to announce the uh, theme for today. Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you that it can rescue us when we feel like a wretch, and it can put us on a new course of love and power and purpose and joy and hope. And pray that for everyone here today, we will both know that we've got the chance for that new course, but also really sense the invitation to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this talk is entitled The Incredible Sulk, and I think there's a, a graphic coming up on the screen there today, because we've been following through uh, one of those Bible stories that you'll find in children's Bibles, uh, the great story of Jonah and the big fish. And do you know the story of Jonah and the big fish? It's a, a man who is told by God, you're a professional religious prophet, um, go off to the people over there and tell them that they need to turn their back on their sins. And professional religious prophets uh, like being bossed around as much as every one of the rest of us. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm not going there, I'm going there instead. Why did he go Uh, There rather than there, we find out as this story unfolds. But what we do know is that he doesn't like what's going on one little bit. God engineers him into a circumstance where he is going to have a second chance. And this comes uh, on slide two, when uh, he is spat out of the whale. And I think that says uh, Jonah talking just in front of the fish or whale's mouth saying, yes, God, I can hear you now. (laughs) He's had his course redirected by a divine hand, and now he's going to make his way back to Nineveh. What do you need to know about Nineveh to understand the story? Well, the first thing is that Nineveh literally translates as fish. It is a big fish. He's been rescued by a big fish to go to a big fish. It's supposed to be sort of funny, um, but doesn't quite translate into the English. Uh, So he is now going to go to the big fish and tell them that God wants them to change. Why this city? Why, what's wrong with them? The second thing you need to know is that they're just not really very nice people. They're one of the big cities of a commanding, dominating power. Uh, they've all done the wrong votes in the elections and elected in the despotic, horrible leaders who are going to sort of annoy everyone around them. And for years, their city and their nation has been invading poor little um, Judea and Israel, where Jonah is from. So he's in the victim country with this great big neighbor next door, and God is sending him to say, you've got to repent to a big neighbor. Imagine walking into, I don't know, pick any color, um, say white, say a white house in a big despotic country not far away, and saying, you need to repent. Um, How would it go down? Well, Jonah wasn't looking forward to the situation, but why not? Is it because it's a bit dangerous to walk into a tyrant's house and say, stop it, you're wrong, it's not good, and God's going to judge you? That would seem a logical reason, wouldn't it, why he wouldn't go there. But that's not the reason why he didn't want to go there. The reason he didn't want to go there is in our reading in 4 verse 2, and it's simply the nature of his boss. He's got one of those bosses at work, in this case it's God, one of the bosses at work, who is basically quite a big softy when it comes to dealing with the people who are annoying everyone in the office. 
If one of those bosses who always seems to be letting people off their misdemeanors, one of these bosses who keeps giving people a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth chance, and you're like, but they keep nicking my stuff, but they're always taking my car up, but they keep cutting in on me on my way in, but they're a bully, but they... And the boss just gives them a second, third, fourth chance. And Jonah knows that his boss, a.k.a. God, is that sort of boss. And he doesn't trust his boss to bring the punishment to his enemies that he wants his enemies to face. He thinks his boss, the God of the Old Testament, is too soft to deliver the judgment that he requires God to have on his enemies. <laughs> so, he doesn't want to tell them, but he does tell them. And when he does tell them, they repent. They hear his word, and in the most incredible sermon ever, 120,000 people in this city all repent. For 40 days, 40 nights, they wear sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of wanting to change your life around. And they decide that they want to get back with God. They cry out on their knees saying, God, help us, forgive us. We didn't realize the wrong we were doing. Please, please have mercy on us. And guess what? The God of the Old Testament says, yeah, all right then. I'm going to forgive you. And Jonah at this point is absolutely livid, absolutely livid. He goes off into an incredible sulk. Now, I don't know how good you are with sulking and anger or what perpetuates those things in the house that you live in. For me, the classic thing to get you going in anger on Saturday morning is uh, down to a certain Swedish furniture warehouse, um, which is where Nicola and I took the children yesterday to try and sort out one of our children's bedrooms. And uh, here's an image from a certain Swedish uh, furniture warehouse store. Next slide. That's uh, from the Sea Life Center. <laughs> there we are. Uh, that, that sort of moment when you've loaded up the trolley and it's collapsed. Or oh, here's another one. Next, next slide. Uh, this is uh, the Billy bookcases rearranged into the letters H-E-L-P <laughs> after giving up. And here's a dad who's been told by uh, his wife... You can watch the football when the blinking chest of drawers are finally put together <laughs> and collapsing at the end. There are a few things more inclined to make me cross and angry than that pressure of the Ikea moment. And if any of you are thinking of going to, say, Argos or Ikea for Christmas, do think about that spa break instead. It may be better for your marriage, health, livelihood, family, whatever. But Jonah in his anger, decides that he's going to have a go at making something. He tries to make for himself a shelter. Probably not very good at it, our Jonah, probably as the guy featured here. Uh, and it, it goes wrong. So God, the boss, says, all right, here you are. Here's a nice plant. And the plant grows up over Jonah, protects him from the heat of the sun, gives him warmth, shelter. Uh, he's, he's away from intense pressure. And he is happy again. He's absolutely delighted about this plant until a long, oh, back one, back one, along comes the worm. <laughs> and God then sends a worm along to eat up the plant, the vine. And Jonah's left there sulking. Now Jonah, at this point, all he's got to say for himself is, I'm mad enough to die. I'm so fed up with this, I could die. 
And it's not even hyperbole, is it? You know how our emotions just grip us, and there's those, those moments where you're like, I just can't do this anymore. Um, if you've ever been in our house, as Richard's smiling at the back there, is uh, living with us at the moment going, yep, yep, that happens quite regularly. Yep, six o'clock in the morning. Yep. <laughs> it's hard work, isn't it, doing life. Actually, Scott Peck said that life is difficult, and when you realize that, it begins to become a little bit more manageable. <laughs> While you're expecting it to be perfect, it's very difficult. And Jonah is like, this is tough. I don't want to do this anymore. You're letting the enemies off. You're letting everything off. And now you've destroyed the only thing that was good in my life, a vine. <laughs> He's forgotten, of course, that he has had the privilege of growing up knowing God, had the extraordinary experience of being saved by a whale, and will go down in history as the best preacher ever, bar none, from the Old and New Testament. <laughs> what an incredible life he's had. But he's in super sulk mode. And sulking and anger are diagnostically really helpful for us in our lives. Do you ever get angry about anything? <laughs> You're not allowed to lie to a vicar. <laughs> do you ever get angry about anything? Of course you do. We, we get angry, don't we? We get angry about things all the time. Anger shows that we care. It shows that we're bothered, doesn't it? If you weren't angry about anything, you'd be living in a sort of Orwellian state of non-existence, just going along passively through there. When you get angry, it tells you straight away there's something that you care about. Now, of course, different people deal with anger differently, and in a different house, you can see these things coming out differently. Some people are what they call rhinos. Have you come across that phrase in terms of anger? The rhino does this, don't they? And butts straight into the problem and hammers people with it. And other people um, are, he this isn't you, Jen, is it? Hedgehogs. Who uh, go, I like these. <laughs> and, and sort of hide away. But the thing about the hedgehog is, there's a high chance that inside their little tiny curled up hedgehogness is a volcano that's just steaming and then suddenly it's going to go, vroom! <laughs> Explosion. Some of us are rhinos, some of us are hedgehogs, but we all get angry. And when it explodes in a hedgehog, it's really bad. Now, Jonah's done his hiding away, his running away thing. Uh, when, he, when he went off um, to hide in Tarshish, in his escape land. And now he is exploding. And everything he wants to say is, I just want to die. I'm so angry that you are too nice, God. I really needed a God right then who would judge my enemies and sort them out and make things all right for me. I don't want you letting people off. I don't want to forgive people. I don't want you giving people second chances. I don't want you caring for people who break your rules. I don't want you doing all these things. You should only like the good people like me. So there, I'm going to die now. And it's so human, isn't it? As adults, we sort of train ourselves out of showing the emotion and reaction. But if you ever go into the creche or upstairs to the toddler's room, you'll see human beings before they've learned that that's not socially acceptable. Quite happy to throw things across the room. <laughs> And break things. I'm not advocating the throwing things across the room and breaking things, but you see the emotion there. What can we do with it? Well, God says to Jonah, look, okay, there's your anger. Um, you're angry about this plant dying. Um, what did you do to make the plant grow? 
he's, he's quite nice to him, notice. He doesn't say, you know, how did your IKEA project get on? How did you do on your own? You know, well, well done. He doesn't sort of rub in that he couldn't manage the, the nuts and bolts thing. But what did you do to make the plant grow? Nothing. So, so what right have you got to be angry about this thing that you did nothing to get your circumstance that has been taken away from you? Because none of us get to determine our circumstances, do we? <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost like one of life's lottery that we're not one of the two billion people who don't have access to clean water in the world. <laughs> what, what did we do to get born into a Western country in the 20, 20th, 21st century? It just happened to be our lot. Now, some people's lots may be harder than others within it, but we have these circumstances that we did nothing <laughs> to engineer. Have we given ourselves life? What have we done? What could we create from nothing ourselves? Absolutely nothing. And he gets taken away from Jonah. He sulks to bits. But God says, well, contrast that plant, that circumstance that you've got, that you did nothing to engineer really in the first place, you just sat under for a day and a night, with these 120,000 people in a city, three days walk across, that I've cared about since before creation began. I've cared about for the whole of eternity. And they've got cattle there as well. I care about the cows as well. <laughs> Shouldn't I care for these people that I've loved since before the world began, that you're happy for me just to wipe out in an instant? You did nothing to engineer your own circumstances that you were born into, this plant that grew up. Shouldn't I care for this thing that I've been planning for the whole of history? And if to forgive is divine, can't I be divine, Jonah, and forgive these horrible people? So what could Jonah have done differently? That's the end of the story. We don't know anything after that, except for the fact the story's written down. So maybe he got the message and decided that it was a story worth telling. Maybe he did change. Maybe he did soften his heart. But it seems to me there are two things to take away from this story for us in the era beyond Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his three days and three nights in a tomb, like Jonah's three days, three nights in the whale. One is, if you know the experience of being rescued, or in religious terms, saved or redeemed salvation, if you know what it's like to have been at a low ebb and been picked up by an incredible God for something that you didn't deserve, rescued by Jesus' cross, resurrection, and, and his, his, his coming again, if you know what it's like to be saved by Jesus to be forgiven just the way you are, to be loved exactly as you are, with nothing hidden out. If you know what that's like, then take note of Jonah and forgive people around you. You're not a Jonah. Don't be a Jonah. Don't sulk. Release them into your forgiveness, whatever they have done to you. If you don't forgive them, it's not going to hurt them, but it is going to hurt you you're holding on to your anger, bitterness, and pain. Harder if they've hurt someone you love than it is if they've hurt you, I know. But release them, because you know what it's like to be released. But you could say, well, Jonah had that story too. He knew what it was like to be rescued very physically in a belly of a fish. 
and he was still sulking, so I'm going to sulk as well. And here's the second thing. If you know the story of Jesus, if you know what it's like to be rescued by that man spending three days, three nights for you in the belly of that tomb, then if you've asked him into your life, it's not you on your own who has to forgive people, who has to let people go. It's actually him in you and through you that can let people go. And when he enables you to let people go, what you have to understand is that he still does the maths. He still does the maths. Because you could say, it's not fair to let people go when they've done something bad and they've hurt me or they've hurt the person I love or or they've just piled up this misery in the world. It's not fair to let them go. And you would be absolutely right. It's not fair at all. In fact, everything in us rebels against it, doesn't it? it imagine going to Isleworth Court. Uh, you're up before a judge, and there's someone who's done something horrible to you or your friend or your family member, and the judge just goes to the criminal, yep, you're guilty, but never mind. Out you go, son. <laughs> Off you go. I forgive you. Well, you can imagine the headline in the Express and the Sun the next day, can't you? Isleworth judge loses his marbles. Is that what we're asking God to do, to lose his marbles and just say, it didn't matter when you hurt my friends, my loved one, when you hurt George, Sarah, Frank, Charmaine, Oliver. Didn't matter. Never mind, you're forgiven. Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. God still does the maths. And the maths is this, that on the cross of Jesus... this extraordinary turning point of all history. He puts his son on the cross voluntarily to drink down the full justice for every shameful, sad, horrible, sinful, unforgivable thing that every single human being, you and me included, have ever done. And he drinks it down utterly onto his pure, perfect, good, wonderful body. And he dies. In the grave, he can't stay. He's the author of life. And he rises again with all the sins squashed down and liberation there. So that anyone who believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life, life in all its fullness, free from sin and shame and unforgiveness and guilt and anger and bitterness and pain, free to be properly human again. Friends, there are millions of people in England who think they've got an idea what Christianity is all about, and they haven't got the first clue about the last six sentences that we just said here. They don't really know that the point of Jesus was not to show us how to be good or to point our way to be nicer, but to rescue us from our wretchedness and give us a chance to forgive as we are forgiven. But now you know that. You've heard it here today. 
You know, believe me, please pick up a Bible into the New Testament and read it for yourself. Search it out for yourself. Because if what I've just said is true, there is no bigger manifesto in the whole of history, no more life-changing words in the whole of eternity than that you can be forgiven because God loved you so much that he died in your place to forgive you of your sins and so that you could let go the pain and bitterness that you've been feeling for so many people through your life. Don't be a Jonah. Be someone who's been rescued. And be someone who lives as someone who is free. Don't be a Jonah. Be like Jesus. You can only do it in his strength. And that's what he's offering you today. May God bless his word to us and bless you as you've heard it. In Jesus' name.